We are in chapter 7 of Revelation. The sermon series is entitled The Unveiling. And this morning's message is simply entitled The 144,000. Now, uh, last week we ended at, a, at, an inter, at an interesting spot. We saw where John was receiving the vision of the seals being broken on the scroll. And there are seven seals on this scroll. And just as a reminder, this scroll that was handed to Christ by God, this scroll contains basically all of redemptive history, every bit of redemptive history. And the only one worthy of opening the scroll is the Lamb of God. That's what we found out, that Christ is the Lion of Judah, that that's what John, was, that's what John heard, that Jesus is the Lion of Judah, and then he sees a lamb in front of him as though he had been slain. And this lamb reaches out to God on his throne and receives the scroll, and only he is worthy. And the reason he is worthy is because he was slain, that his blood was utilized for the washing, for the cleansing of all sin. And so then last week we spoke about these seals being broken, and we talked about the four horsemen that were coming, and we talked about what those meant, the, the white horse and the red horse and the black horse and the pale horse, and we talked all about that. And then we run up against this, uh, this sixth seal, uh, and I'm going to read that because the sixth seal is sort of the culmination of all history, where God is finally pouring out the remaining wrath down on the earth. And, and what we discussed is that this, these seals are the tribulation. They are the tribulation and that the church has not been removed from the tribulation. So there are many that believe that the church will be removed from the period of tribulation uh, before the tribulation occurs. And that's not what we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is that the tribulation is going to, incur, uh, going to occur and the church is going to endure that tribulation, that they're going to be there during that tribulation period. And then we land on verse 12 of chapter 6, and I just want to read that to you all. You don't have to flip there, but I just want to remind you of what it says because it matters for what we're going to be reading today. So it says, When he opened the sixth seal... I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That's their question. Who can stand and face this wrath that is coming on us, that is coming from God on his throne and from the Lamb of God, from Christ, that is pouring out that wrath? Now, this is the culmination of history. What I will say is that this has not happened yet, all right? This is something that Christ prophesied about in chapter 24 of Matthew, and this is also a passage that is torn out of context often. 
You all might remember that uh, fantastic blood moon that we saw uh, about a year ago, maybe two years ago, uh, that, that eclipse that occurred. And when you looked up in the sky, the moon just looked bright red. And uh, I'm a photographer, and so I got out there. I think it was probably around midnight or something like that. I got my camera all set up and just got this beautiful picture of the eclipse. And the moon was just, just red as could be. And I remember that during that time and leading up that time, I saw so many posts and articles written saying the time is nigh. The time is nigh. because instead of saying near, you say nigh because it's much more impactful. Okay, it means it sounds much more uh, important, right? And so the time is nigh. The Lord is coming, and every time there is a meteor shower, there's a meteor shower coming here tonight, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And there's gonna, I guarantee you, there're gonna be people watch. The Lord might be riding on one of those meteors, like he's Silver Surfer or something, folks. Okay. Folks, that is a misreading of this text. That's a misreading of this text. That's not what's happening here. What's happening in this passage is the sixth seal that the Lamb of God is opening, and that is going to be the culmination of history. Now, do earthquakes and pestilence and those blood moons and the meteors and all that, do they hint at this sixth seal? I would say, yeah. Yeah, they do. They're a, they're, they're a foreshadowing of what is coming, but they are not the sixth seal. Okay, what we're going to find is that this event is going to be so dramatic, so dramatic that everyone living in pride and arrogance and greed and all these individuals in power who have rejected Christ for so long are now going to be cowering under the mountains and behind boulders and they're going to say, hide us from the wrath of God. Nobody's doing that at this time. But it will happen. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. That will happen. It isn't happening just yet. But the question remains that they are asking at this time, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's what we're going to find out in chapter 7, who can actually stand. So would you bow and pray with me? as I pray for the reading of our word this morning and for the preaching of our word. Father in heaven, we ask that you would be with us this morning as we read through this text, that we try to understand it and discern it, Lord, that we wouldn't misunderstand it, misapply it, read it out of context and read our own meaning into this text, but that we would take it as it is and do our best uh, through the working of the Holy Spirit in us uh, to understand it so that it would uh, cause us to worship, for, Father, it would lead us to worship. It would lead us to greater faithfulness and greater commitment, Lord. We love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, this text is probably, if it's probably, I would say, in the top three texts in Revelation that is ripped out of context and misunderstood. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have used this text and built much of their theology around this text by misapplying it. Uh, there are others that read this text and completely just twist it and turn it on its head. And so what, I, what I'm hoping to do this morning is help us understand what, what God is revealing, what Christ is revealing to John and, and hence revealing to us so that we would be, we'd better understand it and know that this 
has implications for us as believers here in 2021. So what I want to do is instead of reading the entire passage, I'm going to do what we've done in the past in chapter in the chapters, and I'm just going to read and explain as I go, okay? And I'm going to sort of make commentary, um, and uh, I'm going to bring out some of the misunderstandings, and I'm going to try to explain that in a way that where we can all grasp it. Does that sound good? Okay, so if you'll just follow along with me in chapter 7, that'd be great. So John writes, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Now remember, John is still in the spirit, if you will. This is still a vision that he is being, that's been revealed to him. And he's now seeing these four angels basically holding things back, right? Now, the four corners of the earth, that is common language that basically means the whole earth, okay? Now, these angels are working under the sovereignty of God. So whatever they are doing, they are doing by the power of God. And what's, and the, and, and what's going on here is they have been instructed to hold everything back. God controls everything. We see this in the gospel where Christ controls the wind. I mean, just with a, stop and the wind stops. Blow and the wind blows. Move and things move. God controls everything, absolutely everything. It is often said that and used and and i have said this and i still say this at times where we will say especially when something negative happens that god allowed something to happen and i believe that that's true that god allows certain certain things to happen so when we see an earthquake or something that god allowed that because we don't want to take power from god but we don't want to attribute things to god either right we want to be we're trying to kind of like walk that thin line what i want to tell you is this if there is an earthquake, God has ordained that. If there is a tornado, God has ordained that. If there is pestilence, God has ordained that. COVID-19, God has ordained that. Now that sounds difficult, I understand that. Okay, What I mean by that is nothing is out of God's hand and we should celebrate that we should celebrate the fact that everything even disease sickness uh, disaster all of those things are under God's control we don't want to live in a world where those things are out of God's control we want to live in a world where God's hand is on everything because if God's hand is not on everything, then those things have no purpose. But if God's hand is on all of it, then there is purpose to those things. Folks, as much as we have seen the, the difficult time that we have seen even with COVID right now, I want you to know there is purpose to that. There is purpose to that. There is purpose to the earthquakes in Haiti. There are purpose, there's purpose to tornadoes that strike Alabama and Missouri and Kansas. There's purpose to all of that. God is in control, and he's in control of this. And in verse 2, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. This gives the angel authority. 
And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea. So these angels that are, that are basically covering, they have authority over the whole earth, they have been given the power to destroy everything. They have been given the power of, of accomplishing what is in, verse, in, in the sixth seal. So all that that's getting ready to happen, the earthquakes, the stars that are following, following, the blood moons, all of that stuff, these angels have been given the authority to accomplish those tasks when that sixth seal is open. However, this one angel says this, do in verse 3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, this harkens back. There's another word for you, harken. All right, this goes back all the way to Ezekiel chapter 9. In Ezekiel chapter 9, we have testimony. Now, remember, much of Revelation are, is uh, recapitulations of what's happening in the Old Testament, in Daniel, in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, and, and some of the minor prophets as well. In Ezekiel 9, what we see is that there were seals that were going to be placed on the foreheads of individuals who were not idolaters. So they were going to go through Jerusalem, and anyone who was not an idolater was going to get a seal on their forehead. The seal and, and, this, and individuals who were not sealed would be destroyed because they fell into idolatry. That's what this passage is referencing. Okay, It's an allusion to that passage. And so what the angel is saying to these four destructive angels is you are going to get the opportunity to fulfill the sixth seal, but we want you to wait until all the people of God have been sealed. Now, what is that? Now, if you've read Revelation, you know that we're getting ready to get to a part where there's going to be the mark of the beast, right? Or if we could say the seal of Satan, all right? We're going to talk more about this, but what you're going to see is that Satan likes to take things that God does and he distorts them. He creates parodies of what God does. They look similar to what God does, but they are not even close to what God does. And so whereas God seals his people by the power of the Holy Spirit, Satan is going to mark his individuals with the mark of the beast. Believers have the mark of Christ, Unbelievers will have the mark of Satan. Now, this is a symbolic marking. Okay, a symbolic marking. I do not read this or take this to be that we're going to have a bunch of believers with, with special marks on their forehead. And why don't I believe that? We have Christians here this morning. I'm a believer. And as you all look upon me, and look right between my eyes here, you don't see any special seal. But I have been sealed. When I came to faith in Christ, when the Holy Spirit regenerated me, when I was cleansed of my sin, past, present, and future sin, I was sealed by the Holy Spirit. And that seal says, by Christ, He's mine. That's what that seal says. When the Holy Spirit seals us, he's saying, he's mine. 
She's mine. You can't have her, Satan. You can't have him, Satan, because he is mine. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Sealed by the Holy Spirit. Believers at this moment are being sealed. That's what's happening here. What the angel is saying is, angels... Do not harm the earth in the way that the the sixth seal depicts. Do not harm it yet. Because not all of those intended to be sealed have been sealed. Remember, if you are a believer this morning, it is not by accident. God did not say, oh, I did not know they were going to believe. No, no, no. You were chosen before the foundations of the earth. You were elected in love to be a believer in Christ. It is not by accident. And when you were saved, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. And we're not done yet. We're not done yet. How do I know we're not done yet? Because this stuff hasn't happened yet. So that should give us motivation to go out and share the gospel because there are still sheep out there that are part of this fold, but they have not believed yet, but they will believe. And it is our task to go share the gospel. Whether we are in high school, whether we're in college, whether we're in the workforce, whether we're retired, no matter what our age, it is our task to go and share the gospel so that the sheep who are lost will be found so that they might be sealed for the day that is coming. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Sealed, now I want you to hear this, from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now before I read that, we're going to read 12 different tribes. And many individuals, if you have read or listened to the Left Behind series, you know that those authors, there's a fancy name for them, they're called dispensationalists, all right? And I'm not going to go into what that means, that's beyond this message. But all I will tell you is they believe that that is a special remnant of Jewish people who will come to faith in Christ. That the church has been raptured and that these future believers exist and that they're going to be saved and that's who this represents. I don't believe that's what this text reads and I'm going to explain that. So let's go ahead and read this. I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Now, if you're like me, you see those, and you kind of just skip over those. Can there really be? Okay, so it's 12 tribes. Is there any significance to this? There's absolute significance. Now, here's what I believe and what others believe. And by the way, I've checked multiple commentaries about this, and, and, and they 
say nearly the exact same thing, is that this 144,000 number is a symbolic number of all the people who have or who will be saved. Not just Jews, but also Gentiles, you and I. Okay? Let me give you a few reasons why they believe that and I agree with that. All right? That I'm comfortable saying that I believe that too. Here's why. First of all, 144,000, that's a really specific number. That's, I mean, that, it's, 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 it's an odd number, right? Well, remember, numbers in apocalyptic literature have meaning. Rarely are those numbers meant to be taken literal in apocalyptic literature. Okay? Now, in the Gospels and in in epistles, yeah, when it says there are 12 disciples, we should say, yeah, there's 12 disciples. But this 144,000 just seems really odd, right? So, so let me just walk through that real briefly. First of all, if we take 144,000, let's do a little bit of math. If my nine-year-old was right here, he'd jump out to it, okay? He'd love this one, all right? But if we say 12 times 12, that's 144 right there, okay? And what many people believe is that 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, times the 12 disciples equal 144, and then times 1,000 and all that means is a great multitude, a lot, okay? Oftentimes when we hear a thousand, and we're going to see this when we get to the millennium, is that the word a thousand, uh, the, that number shouldn't be taken literally. It should just mean a lot. And we're going to see this right here in a second, okay? And so what we mean here is that there is going to be a great multitude that are going to be saved. And in fact, here in a few minutes, it's going to say a great multitude from all tribes and peoples and languages, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, that all these people are going to be saved. So that's the first reason why I believe that it's all believers here. The second is this. If we, go, if we look at Judah, the very first tribe, that's an odd place to put that tribe. Okay. And by the way, this list is nowhere found in the Old Testament. This list of tribes is not found in the Old Testament as a list. So this has been constructed specifically for this passage. It's unique. Judah is listed first. Why? Because Christ is from the tribe of Judah. Christ is from the tribe of Judah. And then thirdly here, this is interesting, is that Dan, the tribe of Dan, is omitted from this list. Now, Dan was a common tribe to be included in the list of tribes, but here he's omitted. Why is that? Because Dan, if you go back to Judges 18, Dan, that tribe, was responsible for much sin in Israel. Great sin. And so he's removed from this list because he would not be included, that tribe would not be included in the tribes that would be considered to be saved. That they would be unbelievers, but this is a list of believers. Now, if you don't believe me, that's okay, all right? That doesn't overly affect the understanding of all of Revelation. But if you do see this, what you're going to see is that there is a great multitude of individuals who, are, who have come to faith in Christ and who still will yet come to faith in Christ which should encourage us. We are not alone. Sometimes as a believer, we feel alone, that we, we feel like we're on this island and everybody else out in the world is looking at us and maligning us and that we're alone in our belief and in our faith, but we're not. There are individuals who, be, who believe along with us. 
I remember that when I was in high school, I felt oftentimes that I was the odd guy out. Now, folks, let me be real frank with you. I was the odd guy out, but not because of my faith. It's just because I was odd, okay? I was a very strange guy, okay? I was... I was I just was. I mean, there's really no description of what I was. Um, and, and so I, it, it's amazing that somebody married me. It really is. It really is. And I know that people wonder what's wrong with her. Um, but that's, there's nothing wrong. It's just God's grace. Okay? But sometimes you feel like, I felt like in high school that I was the odd guy out. You know, like, I believe in Jesus, and I want to I live for Christ. I, I, I failed miserably a lot, but I wanted to. It's very difficult in, in middle school and high school to do that. And folks, it doesn't get any easier when you get to college. And then when you graduate from college and you go into the real world, you still feel like you're on an island. And what I want to tell you this morning is you're not. You're not. And folks, I believe that's one of the purposes of the church. So many Christians go on their merry way and they graduate and they get older and they, they build these families and they just, they kind of, I don't have time for church anymore. When you're not in the church, you probably are on an island. So encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ who are not in church to get back in church so they don't feel so alone out there that they have kindred spirits in Christ. So I believe this 144,000 that John has heard. Now, he has not seen this. He has heard this, okay? He's heard this number, and they are, a, they are the number of all those who are and will be redeemed, okay, for all time. Now, let's go down to verse 9. After this, I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand. So he has heard this number, and then he says he sees a number, or, or sees a, 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 this multitude that can't be numbered. That tells you right there that the 144,000 is purely symbolic. Because this great multitude couldn't be numbered. It just couldn't be numbered. And later on in chapter 14, we're going to see that the 144,000 is actually a great multitude. I mean, John says it, and that it's from all people and all tribes. So he's going to describe that here in a few chapters. So right now, John has heard this symbolic number of 144,000, and now he's seeing this great multitude from all peoples and all tribes. It's almost as if it's being explained to him what that number means. But let's see what, they, what they're doing here, okay? Let's just see what they're doing here. It says, From all tribes and peoples and languages, standing, what are they doing? They are standing before the throne and before, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Those white robes uh, are symbolic to depict individuals who have been cleansed from their sin. It, it represents purity. This is why a bride wears a white a gown or a white dress because it symbolizes purity, okay? And so that's where we get that from. And so the church here is wearing a white robe and they have palm branches in their hands. Now, what does this remind you of? 
Okay, this reminds you of the triumphal entrance, right, into, the, into Jerusalem where Jesus is riding on a donkey and he's riding in, right, and he is worshipped as he goes in. And they're, they're, they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. We have, and even during Easter, what do we do? We have these palm branches, right? Well, here's the thing. They have these palm branches in, in Matthew and in Luke and, and in the Gospels, and they're depicting the king entering the city not to conquer but to die. Well, here the king is there, and they have these palm branches, and what are they doing? They're worshiping the conquering king. So in the gospel, he conquers through the cross, and here he's just conquering. He is victorious. It says, The palm branches were in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and around the elders, oh, I'm sorry, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to be our God forever and ever. Amen. Is that not a beautiful picture? The 24 elders, the great multitude, the four living creatures, they are all surrounding the throne, surrounding the Lamb. And what are they doing? They're not standing on their feet with their hands. They are on their faces, prostrate on the ground, worshiping and crying out in worship, saying, salvation belongs to our God. And so what is the answer to the kings and the mighty generals when they say, who can stand? It's the people of God who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, but they are not standing on their feet. They are standing by kneeling on the ground in worship of Christ. Because who is really the only one who can stand? And that's Jesus. But Jesus enables us to be able to endure this. That's what they really mean. Who can stand? Who can endure the wrath of God that is coming? Who can do that? You and I. If you and I have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, then it will be us who will endure the wrath of the Lamb that is coming. And we will not endure by our own might. We will not endure by our own power. None of these multitudes or the elders, none of them have these fancy shields, okay, that block them from the, the stuff that's coming, right? None of them have these like force fields like it's like Star Trek or something, okay? None of them have built these armor cars, right? Folks, I'm going to tell you, no armored tank, no car, no castle, none of those things are going to protect you from the wrath of God that is coming. What is the only thing that protects us from the wrath of the Lamb? It is the seal of God. It's the seal of Christ. That's it. That's it. We don't need anything else. We don't need anything else. All we need is Jesus. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's all we need. Sometimes we make it out to be that in order to walk faithfully with Christ, 
that we need Jesus and all this other stuff that we would add to it. That we need the gospel, but we need all this other stuff that we bring to the table, right? So in order to be a faithful Christian, I, I, we know we have to have Jesus, but then we also need to, you know, we need to put something forth, right? We need to bring something to make this thing kind of click, right? It's kind of like a recipe, all right? To be a faithful Christian, it's kind of like building a really nice cake or a German chocolate brownie, right, Sue? Okay, I mean, that's what it is. got to have this recipe. The main ingredient is Jesus, but if we don't add this other stuff that we've collected, it's just not going to come out right. To be a faithful Christian, this is what you need. Jesus plus nothing. In fact, that's the title of a book. And I love that title. Because you don't. For salvation, for faithfully following Christ, you need Jesus plus nothing else. There is nothing that we bring to the table that adds to our salvation. It's not like you're like salvation 2.0 because you're such a holy Christian. You are saved, saved, saved. There's not like a new addition. It's not like you're going to get an Apple upgrade, okay? Because let's face it, all the upgrades come with bugs, okay? We don't want an upgrade. All we want is Christ. It's enough. And it's enough to withstand the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, I love this passage, folks. I hope maybe I'm a nerd. I love it. He addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? So that's what he asks. So he's talking about all this great multitude, right? He's asking John. All right, who are these folks? Now, folks, it's not because the elders don't know. All right, he's quizzing John, saying, Who are they, John? Who are these in white robes? And I said to him, Sir, you know. I laugh at that because it kind of sounds like, Don't ask me. You already know the answer, right? You already know the answer. I kind of felt like that in school sometimes, right? The teacher would ask me a question, and I was like, well, you know the answer. Why are you asking me? You're teaching the class. So the elder asks John, who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the ones who have come out of the Great Tribulation. Now, that right there, again, is something that has been twisted sometimes, this Great Tribulation. And now we're trying to think of, okay, what's the math? We're waiting for somebody to sign a peace treaty over in the Middle East or something like that, waiting for somebody to rise out of the sea, and then we're trying to do the calculations to make sure we get that seven-year number, right? Now, if you all have read through some of those that literature before, you know those numbers and all that kind of stuff, and you've got a calendar, and you're kind of jotting things down and highlighting things. You've got the newspapers open, and it's like conspiracy theory city, right? That's not what's happening here, folks. The time of tribulation, this great tribulation, is referring to the seven seals that is on that scroll, which we are in right now. We are in the midst 
of the Great Tribulation. Everything from the time that Christ ascended to the throne to the time of His second coming is the period of the Tribulation. If you want to know when the Tribulation is, we are in it. We are in it. And so this great multitude are all of those who have come out of this time of the Great Tribulation, who have been cleansed of their sin and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God. Now, here's the so what, okay? So what are they doing? What is the whole point of this? Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What are you enduring during this time of tribulation right now? What heartache, what pain, what struggles, what difficulties? Because whatever you are enduring now, if you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, there will come a time, sooner than later, I believe, where you will not have to endure that anymore. If you've lost loved ones, that will not be a worry of yours anymore. If you struggle with health issues, that will not be a worry of yours anymore. If you struggle with, uh, name it, what is the tribulation that you are experiencing right now, being in this broken world where sin seems to be prevailing day by day, What are you having to endure? You will not have to endure anymore because Jesus reigns. It says, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be your shepherd. He will guide you. He will lead you. There will not be any more hunger. There will not be any more thirst. You will not have to wonder or worry about where your next meal is coming from. You will not have to worry or wonder whether or not when the next shoe is going to drop. Some of us live every day just wondering when the next shoe is going to drop. You know what I mean? You just wonder about that. Like, when's it going to drop? I know it's coming. That, that sense of dread, that sense of dread, what, I'm, what I want to tell you is this. Let go of that dread and fix your eyes on Christ. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Trust Him. So many Christians today 
are, are, are waiting for the day when Christ will return and pull us from this broken, broken, pestilent, riddled world. And it's as if we are waiting for that day. And folks, I'm waiting on that day too. But while we are waiting, that doesn't mean that you have to stop living for Christ. Set your eyes on Christ. Let everything that you, be, that you are doing be done for the glory of Christ. I mean everything, whether it's you're playing softball or whether you're going to work or whatever it might be, do it for the glory of Christ. Because anything that you do for your own glory or for the glory of man is like filthy rags. It's like soiled, filthy rags, and it will waste away. It will perish. You cannot take it with you. I don't care how many U-Hauls you drag behind the hearse. You're not bringing it with you. But anything that you do for the glory of Christ will last. It will last. To close, I will just say this. You see this picture here of this great multitude before the Lamb, before God seated on His throne. And they are serving God. And they are worshiping God. And yesterday as we were serving the Lord by serving Sue at her house, she kept saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I appreciate that. But at the same time, we were saying thank you to her for allowing us to come and do that because it's a pleasure to serve. It was, not, it was hard work. There was hard work being done yesterday, but it was a joy. It was such a joy to do that. Folks, if you struggle with the thought or if you don't like the idea of spending eternity in the presence of God, worshiping Him, and serving Him, then I'm just going to be blunt. You won't have to worry about it, because you won't be there. You won't be there. We need to check ourselves. This morning, are you confident that you have been sealed by the Holy Presence, by the Holy Spirit? Are you confident that you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit are you confident that you will be standing in the presence of Christ? Are you confident that He is your Savior, that He is your Lord, that He is your shepherd? If you are not confident in that, if you are not sure of that, then you need to pray and say, Jesus, give me the assurance that I have been saved. Get in your Bibles and read the Gospels. Read Romans. Read Ephesians. And let the Holy Spirit just work on you. And here's what's going to happen. Is that He is going to do one of two things. He is going to assure you of your salvation. Or He is going to convict you of your sin. So that you will believe. Are you saved this morning? Are you part of this great multitude? Or are you just playing a role? Christ came to save sinners. Are you saved? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? I'm going to pray. And we're going to close with a song. And we don't typically do an invitation like you like that's common 
But I do want to, if, there, if there's anybody in here who is wondering of whether or not they're saved, or you know that you're not saved and you want to be saved, you want Christ to save you, then feel free to come, come talk to Come talk to me. Come talk to Christy. I know that Melvin wouldn't mind, Brother George. I mean, there are several in here that would love to talk to you about that and, and, and show you what it means to be saved, to live for Christ. Are you part of the 144,000 this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Please be with us, Lord, as we conclude this sermon, this service. Please be with us, Lord, as we pour our hearts out to you, Lord, in worship. Lord, we give you all the praise and all the glory. And we know that we bring nothing to our salvation. That it is all about you. Lord, we love you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.